0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 7th, 2021. It's a nice, bright day in San Francisco. Um, The weather is generous. But the world is turning mean, it would seem, at least from the headlines today. There's a, an ominous quality, I think, to, uh, to the nature of things in early December 2021. Um, Joseph Biden is in talks with Vladimir Putin, uh, uh, quoting the headlines in The New York Times amid fears that Russia may invade Ukraine uh, the 20 20- Twenties then are turning into perhaps the 1930s. War on the horizon. Um, according to the BBC, Western leaders are urging Russia to lower Ukrainian tension. I'm not entirely sure what a Western leader is. Whatever it is, they're not perhaps doing a, a great job in leading. Um, according to the excellent columnist who's been a, a guest on this show, uh, Gan- uh, Yanan Ganesh, Uh, We in the West are a victim of our own long peace. I think there may be some truth to that. Um, Joe Biden, when he accepted the nomination to become American president, pledged to restore the soul of America. Again, I'm not entirely sure what the soul of America means, but I'm not sure either that he's been particularly successful. Uh, Politics in America is becoming increasingly dark. Devin Nunes um, Perhaps the, the the upcoming Joseph Goebbels of, uh, of right-wing America is planning to leave Congress to become uh, Donald Trump's media company CEO, in other words, his master of propaganda. Um, in Silicon Valley, we are obsessed with irrelevance. Uh, the Elizabeth Holmes trial is the thing that's catching our imagination. Uh, media is increasingly inward-looking. We're worrying about Chris Cuomo, the CNN anchor guy who was caught between loyalty to perhaps a broader morality and uh, family morality in terms of his brother. We have a a Gen Z, which apparently is most stressed by the coronavirus. In other words, uh, a Gen Z, a younger group of people in America, increasingly inward looking. And of course... Perhaps the darkest cloud on the horizon is the imminent combat, perhaps, war between the United States and China. Um, so even Joe Biden seems full of hypocrisy as a, a summit for democracy coming up this month, in which he's invited some very, very undemocratic characters like Orban, the, uh, the prime minister of Hungary. So, what are we to make of doing good? Uh, in a world turned mean. My guest today has written a book about it, The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Turned Mean. He's a best-selling writer. I think this is his fourth or fifth book, David Badanis. He's talking to me from North London, Hampstead. Um, uh, He's a professor at Oxford and uh, a prolific writer. Uh, Let's bring David in. Uh, David, Am I being excessively bleak? Have I already depressed you about a world in December 21 that is
1: turning horribly bleak? No, you could have gone on about climate change and... Um... Yeah, I
0: miss climate change. That's Yeah,
1: so there, there, there's really plenty. The only consolation, it's not really complete consolation, um, we've been in terrible situations before. Mankind has really been at the brink. Uh, We were at the brink with nuclear war at various times in the Cold War. We were really at the brink of losing almost all decency and civilization in the late 1930s with the growth of fascism. And um, I suppose what I was getting at is some of me wants to like, is there hope? And then I thought, if I'm a quiet writer sitting in a room in North London, I could say whatever I want. Why should you possibly believe me? Like, good, he's happy. But if I could look through history and find that there were times that were as rough as this, and yet decent people managed to, using relatively decent mechanisms, still manage to prevail. That's really impressive. If you find out there's a nice, I don't know, high school teacher, that's nice. It's, it's easy to be a high school teacher. I mean, it's not trivial. It, you, it's, a, it's a worthy job. But in international affairs, when there's no rules or business or tech where, you know, anything goes and the rewards are so huge, to find out that there really have been people who followed not the soft path, being soft and nice gets you crushed. You know that famous phrase, nice guys finish last. It's true. If you're really nice, you get walked over. But you don't have to be a total and jerk that was to get the the,
0: uh, the baseball manager, uh, Leo DeRosha. Uh, That's, the man. that famously. Um, That's the man. I'm curious as to the title, um, David, uh, of your book, The Art of Fairness. Has fairness an art? You don't call it the science of fairness. Uh, There are writers, and I think some of your contemporary writers in in, in your space might describe fairness as a kind of science. You begin with a quote from Norman Maclean, all good things come by grace and grace comes by art. And art does not come easy. Is decency an art, David?
1: Yeah, Uh, well, um, because, you know, it's easy to imagine what you want to do. But when reality happens, it's a bit different. Remember Mike Tyson's famous quote, any gym boxer can think they're a great boxer until they get punched in the mouth and then everything changes. So it's really hard, you know, who's who says they really want to be unfair? But to make this happen is really, it's difficult. Remember the thing I was saying that being soft and being nice isn't enough. If you simply decide I'm gonna be generous to everybody, you'll get taken advantage of, you need to audit. You know, I remember uh, Ronald Reagan, who I rarely quote, uh, but he said, trust, but verify, you know, like walk softly, but carry a big stick. So to do these things well, you need a bunch of extra skills. That's why I like teaching, they're not so much parables because they're true stories, but looking at people who uh, actually made this work, you know, the, the 10 stories or so that I have in the book, each one uses slightly different skills to make this happen. It's like, what's the secret of your success this way? Well, there's 10 or 20 things, and they're always different from case to case. I wish it were a science. But, you know, it's like, you know, those books that talk about the you science. Why wish it was science? a science? Well, uh, no, I say, I wish it, if it were a science, it'd be very easy. I could say, do these five things, and you have guaranteed success. Remember, there's this book, The Five Habits of Highly Effective People, or The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That number is uh, changing. Well, there's no seven things you can do automatically and will work. It's sort of like buying Michael Jordan basketball shoes or LeBron James shoes. It won't make me Michael Jordan or LeBron James. It just it, it doesn't work that way. Are you making money, but are you not sure you're doing all
0: the right things with it? Are you investing it correctly? Are you saving it or are you somehow losing it? Is it falling between the cracks in your life? Does money stuff stress you out? It certainly stresses me out and I'm sure it stresses out all of my listeners. Are you just winging it with your finances? I am, you probably are, and most of us do because that is the nature of most of our financial self-management. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Facebook. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Playbook, the app for growing your own money. For the average user, Playbook helps boost their net worth by over 1.3 million dollars. Yes, that's 1.3 million dollars. There's no paperwork with Playbook. You just connect your own bank accounts and Playbook builds a plan to maximize your own tax advantages. Playbook tells you which tax advantaged accounts you need, how much money to put into each of them, and even automates these processes for you. Money stuff can be stressful, we all know that, but Playbook makes it easy to review your own financial plan, track your own financial progress, and make changes at any time you want. Plus, it's all automated. Once your financial plan is in motion, Playbook is on it. They keep an eye on all your finances and adjust your plan accordingly. It's rare, very, very rare that a finance app thinks about your finances as a whole. That's your all your finances, your taxes, your savings and all your life financial goals. Whether it's a wedding, a family trip, donating to charity, or the fire lifestyle, Playbook helps you get there faster. So what's my favorite Playbook feature? I really like the way in which the app shows me all my accounts, all my goals, and all my progress in a single place instead of having to log on to 10 different confusing finance apps. Uh, Automatica contribution to my Roth IRA and travel fund uh, every month, the playbook impact. It tracks and predicts how old I'll be when I can stop working forever. So get on the road to financial freedom go to halloplaybook.com forward slash keen on. And with my unique link, halloplaybook.com forward slash keen on, you get a free playbook impact. It predicts how much your net worth could grow if you start today. Halloplaybook.com forward slash keen on playbook to financial freedom and beyond. So you begin the book, David, uh, by acknowledging that you've always been fascinated by a simple question. I think it's a question we've all been fascinated with. Can you succeed without being a terrible person? Uh, And the book, as you say, is a series of chapters about individuals who didn't who did succeed by not being a terrible person there are also some chapters on individuals who succeeded and then failed as truly terrible people but the the man perhaps who comes out of your book uh, as the greatest of all heroes is fdr franklin d roosevelt i'm quoting you here having uh, you you talk about the second half turns to what happens when you put all the lessons together on the larger scale here i show how A master of human behavior, the president during World War II, Franklin D. Roosevelt, turned all the seeming constraints of fairness and decency into advantages, even in the harshest of settings, allowing him to help defeat one of the greatest evils the world has ever seen. Uh, What is it about FDR, um, uh, David, that, that, that makes him the hero of your book and the
1: hero of the art of fairness? I suppose there there's a couple of things. One is that it wasn't easy for him. Like that uh, beautiful quote that you quoted from Norman McLean, uh, McLean, uh, who I, I was lucky enough to study with when I was young and and, and he was old. Uh, the way and also it's important that he says it does not come easy. I mean, instead of saying does not come easily, and he was an English professor, he'd actually grown up really tough in Montana in the 19 teens and 1920s, fighting wild forest fires and and all sorts of stuff. So when he said easy, that vernacular. He was a man, again, he had street smarts. He knew how the real world worked. And some people know how the real world works, but they're kind of cynical or selfish about it. Other people are sort of, their heads are in the clouds and they wouldn't be good for anything. What I love about Roosevelt is he began his life kind of as a fool or a spoiled little playboy. He's from a super rich family. They'd have generations after generation of inherited money, the old uh, Dutch American aristocracy from upper New York state and stuff the Hudson River Valley, and he looked in his 20s and 30s to be uh, just a nothing, a little nebbish, uh, not doing much, just living off of mommy and daddy's trust fund. But then when he was around 39, he was stricken with a terrible uh, bout of polio. Turns out if your legs are paralyzed, you can still kind of move forward on crutches because you twist your hips. You just slide. I've I've never had polio, but I, I once had a badly broken leg, and it's not that hard to get around. But if your hips are paralyzed, it's almost impossible to move because your entire body is dead weight just hanging down. And his hips were paralyzed and he was distraught. So he spent a while sort of in the F. Scott Fitzgerald world, just floating around on a houseboat in the Florida Keys, having gin martinis and stuff with other rich boys. Uh, this was um, uh, in the 1920s um, until finally, when he was at rock bottom, a really nice woman, a, 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 a blue collar, a uh, feisty lady from Baltimore named uh, uh, Marguerite LeHand, who later became chief of staff in the White House. She said, what are you doing? Why? You're just gonna spend your whole life doing this? And she helped turn him around. And instead of becoming an arrogant, selfish person, he realized I was thrown to the floor by this force greater than me. Other people who are at the bottom of society, are they are they weak? I wasn't weak. Maybe, Maybe it's not their fault. Maybe we can reach out a helping hand and use all my skills, he'd gone to Harvard or Yale, all that sort of stuff, You and he was well-connected, his distant cousin had been president a, a, ge- a generation before. Maybe I could use all my skills to help other people. It's that beautiful phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. Many of us can repeat that in Sunday school, but to act on it and with the street smarts is not easy. Uh,
0: you contrast um, uh, Roosevelt um, with Joseph Goebbels the master of propaganda in Nazi Germany, one of the most uh, unambiguously evil men um, who's ever existed, Um, the the man who created uh, the the propaganda around Hitler, the propaganda around the the death machine of the the Nazi regime. Um, But I'm curious, when it comes to defeating the Nazis, sure, Roosevelt was important, but why not use Churchill? He was the man who stood up. Churchill now is incredibly controversial, as you know, I'm sure, David. A lot of revisionist historians are seeing him as a colonialist, a racist, um, a, a, a sexist. Uh, Roosevelt, of course, is also controversial in his own way, in his relations with his wife, in the role of his wife, as you suggest, as a as a white man of privilege. Um Shouldn't Churchill be the hero of your story? He was a good man too, wasn't he? Wasn't didn't he
1: have the art of fairness? Now I, I got to say, Andrew, you uh, you you've touched on a sensitive point for an author. The book, as I think, it's medium sized for books, like 80,000 words, something like that. So I wrote all these beautiful <laughs> chapters. Oh, and they took weird. out the Ch- they took out the Churchill bits. Not just Churchill. Lots of <laughs> beautiful. You know, I, at one point in the book, I talk about this cool woman who was a debutante in London who became a guerrilla fighter behind the lines and uh, in the jungle and stuff. And she was really great story. I have three other cool women stories doing neat stuff. I have, I have Churchill. I have all sorts of people. Well, Churchill wasn't have, a woman. No, no, no. But you know what I'm saying? No, I'm you. In, I'm in business and stuff. So so I'm totally with you. Um And also, of course, it's not the only way to be effective. Uh, um, uh, the uh, The great Russian generals and Stalin. Took a totally different and highly, uh, utterly cruel, remorseless approach. And, and they certainly, also, and
0: Stalin certainly didn't. Yes, and, didn't, and that can be effective. didn't so uh, like, cultivate the art of fairness, and he certainly wasn't a decent character. He may not be correct. quite as indecent as Hitler or Goebbels.
1: Absolutely, you're entirely right. And so, what I say in the book, this is not the only way to succeed. Uh, you can succeed, um, you can become president of the United States. With a bad temper and being rude and insulting to people and maybe even you know doing uh, cruel things um you can definitely do that i i don't know how many companies you've worked in i've had uh, some experience with organizations which are really poisonous and terrible people can rise up that's given we know that's true however the beautiful thing is sometimes people can Take this other approach. I remember when I first mentioned it to a a literary agent in New York, the first stirrings of the idea years ago. And I remember they said, but David, why would anybody ever accept those constraints? If you can lie and cheat, clearly it's a quicker way to get your way than telling the truth or uh, being honest or uh, helping somebody. And in one sense, they're entirely right. Uh, If two people are going for a taxi cab and one person says, "Oi, out of the way, I was here first, Unless you're going to fight them, they'll get the taxi cab. You give in. Bullying very often wins. However, bullies get a lot of hatred. I remember when Harvey Weinstein was falling down. Luckily, he was falling down. He had no support. Even his own brother turned against him. Everybody hated his guts. So if if you rise to the top of being a thug and a jerk and a bully, you get no alliances. Also, people are often terrified to tell you the truth, so you don't really know what's going on. You get no gratitude coming back. You just get resentment, et cetera, et cetera. While people who are decent, again, so long as they have street smarts, so long as they're not soft and given to everything, people who are decent, they get wonderful strengths. There's good information transfer. In well, if system. Joe
0: Biden read your book, David, um, who now is talking about standing up to Putin and putting a soul back in America, maybe he has already read your book. Um, what would you tell him about perhaps... Avoiding becoming Neville Chamberlain, because I think that Biden has quite a lot of Chamberlain in him, a little bit clueless, too old, too cut off from the world. Um, At what point do
1: leaders have to grow a spine? Uh, You've hit one of the central things. We're all mixed. I mean, I can be sensible and nice. I can be whiny and complaining. Just before the Franklin Roosevelt and Joseph Goebbels chapter in the book, I stopped and I talked about a man who was famous for flipping his mood. And he he did on a very large scale, what all of us do. Uh, on In the course of a day, um, you know, you can be in a good mood, you can be in a bad mood, you can be generous and help one person, and then the other person just walk by and are selfish. So human beings are fickle. Uh, we have different parts, different potentials. Remember the great uh, 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 runner Jesse Owen, the, the star of the 1936 Olympics. Black American, the best runner in the world at the time, sort of the Usain Bolt of his time and at one point in 1936 he was in new york city he wanted to stay at the waldorf astoria hotel big famous hotel they wouldn't let him in if he came in he had to go through the back door so nobody could see him because there was this insult against him It was this awful racism on the other hand the reason he was staying there staying there was because he was a hero and a huge number of new yorkers of black and white and hispanic and everybody they were getting ready for a huge parade in his honor so was new york in 1936 racist or non-racist The answer, it was both. Um, And what's cool about uh, circumstances and uh, will is sometimes you can bring out those best aspects. What will happen with Biden? Will he be a doddery old man who's kind of lost? Will he be Roosevelt? Will
0: he be Chamberlain? Will he be Churchill? Only time will tell. Well, we are talking to David Bedanis, talking to us from North London, uh, the author of, it, it's, it's just, it's already out in the UK. It's just out in the US, The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency and a World Turned Mean, a very, very timely book. We're going to take a, a short break now, David, and then we're going to come back. And I want to talk more specifically about FDR, your, shall we say, nostalgia for him, what we miss about FDR and what FDR could do if he reappeared today in, in, in December 2021. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back in a minute. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching, or even reading about this keen On show, I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keen On show. The first of course is by in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio only podcast, you can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my Lit Hub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with David Badanis, the author of The Art of Fairness. Really interesting new book, uh, The Power of Decency and a World Turned Mean. As I, uh, as I said in the beginning, um, David's hero in the book is FDR. Um, and we live today in the 19, uh, in the twenty twenties, perhaps in a broken world, as equally broken as the, the world in the mid-1940s that uh, FDR fixed. Um, there's lots of stuff in the book about Roosevelt rebuilding that world, the uh, general agreement on trade and tariffs, the, the NATO World Health Organization, Marshall Plan, and so on. But when I was reading it, David, it, I- I'm inspired, of course, everyone would like to return to that world. But it kind of reminded me of Mrs. Robinson, the great Simon and Garfunkel song. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Uh, is there an element of nostalgia in in going back to FDR and 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 this American, successful American attempt to rebuild the world after the Second World War? It can't be done today. So, what can we really learn from FDR? Because uh, I, I yeah. often have people on the show and said oh, we need a Marshall plan for this, a Marshall plan for fixing racism, a Marshall plan for fixing global warming, a Marshall plan for inequality. And anytime anyone ever mentions a Marshall plan, in my mind, at least, it's shorthand for saying we, we, we haven't the fuck idea of how to fix this thing, so we're
1: going to throw out a Marshall plan. I, I, you're, you're entirely right, because if people want to copy exactly what worked in the past, why conceivably could that apply today? Uh, when you mentioned the Marshall Plan, it was designed very well and it fit very well in a particular time and place. Now, the underlying ideas might be good. Is there a way to be generous and effective? That's a constant or universal. But how to carry it out totally changes. Think of all the business heroes, which uh, if they were from like, I don't know, X years ago, and if they were trying to use their techniques today, it wouldn't work. So Elon Musk today, is very successful and he's a master of Twitter and things like that if he is still successful in 20 years time or if there's newcomers i'd be really surprised if people can say then if you know if you have a problem be just like musk in 2021 it's not going to work in 2041 so you've nailed it you have to take the underlying principles and make it fresh do it in a different way
0: well, there is some good news, David. I hope I haven't made you too miserable. Um, I picked out the most depressing elements of the headlines, but COVID seems to be under control. And you begin your book with uh, the COVID, a COVID story. Uh, the story of um, uh, of how Pfizer, the big uh, biotech company, and a little biotech company called BioNTech developed the COVID nineteen vaccine in record time. A small company operated by a couple of uh, husband and wife team out of Germany. In particular, you talk about a woman called Oslem Tureci, um, yeah, a, a Turkish-born uh, German physicist, uh, a physician. What is it about the BioNTech story uh, and, and, and Tureci, uh, David, that, should, that, that that is relevant for December twenty
1: twenty one? It's actually, it's a good time. It was uh, December 11th, 2020, one year ago, is when the FDA gave uh, approval for their vaccine. And what I love about this couple, and since then, it's got caught up in big business. uh, Is Pfizer charging too much for it? There's all those things on top, the financial business stuff. But underneath, what was actually beginning was this one couple, as you said, in a smallish town in, uh, in, uh, in Germany, who had this idea about this new sort of vaccine. And they had created a startup um, uh, called Biotech. Uh, when the Biotech, about 10 years ago, when BioNTech was two years old, a guy who is a big deal in German finance, uh, a member of the Bundesbank, the sort of the central bank, he wrote a book saying that immigrants are awful and immigrants, especially immigrants from Turkey, lower the national IQ. And this book sold a million copies, million and a half copies in Germany. Well, this couple that we talk about, that I talk about at the beginning of the book, Cireci what's the name of,
0: uh, the So, 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 the, so the woman, uh, the woman is uh, Ozlem uh, Turek. Well, tell me a little bit about the fa- uh, the husband.
1: So the husband is named Sayin. And uh, uh, he actually was born in, uh, uh, sort of in Turkey, uh, near, I think, near the Syrian border. Um, and his father was a, uh, when they went to Germany as poor immigrants, his father worked uh, construction and a Ford uh, car factory and stuff. So he grew up not dirt poor, but absolutely not rich. And anyways, so all these slurs against immigrants in Germany, you're not, you're not really one of us even if you've lived here your entire life and gone to school here and been a doctor here and helped people here they knew that there were some people who thought that they were inferior that they were dumber that you couldn't fit and it's, there's two responses to that one is you could freak out and just get really angry which understandable the other one is you could say you think so bring it on big boy i'm going to show you so these people they had a company about you know several hundred people uh in Mainz, germany And it meant a real lot to them, not just to win the race, to create the uh, first effective vaccine against uh, uh, the coronavirus, but to do so in a decent manner. They wanted to show that they weren't going to turn into like nasty yelling jerks. And it turned out the only way they could be so fast was they had to empower their staff. Uh, Remember, if if uh, if you just take from people, if you take respect from people and take pride and take their time, all you do is get resentment back. But if you give generously... If you give them the opportunity to show what they can do, if you give them resources and stuff, so long as you audit and make sure that time wasters aren't taking advantage of you, you get wonderful creativity pouring out. So they used all these techniques. And um, in November of last year, their their final tests were coming in and they realized they were sitting at the kitchen table at their house, sipping Turkish tea, which I like to do. And it was at the same table where in January of that year, they'd first gotten the idea of how to shift their company around to make this happen. And in November of last year, that's when they got the news that the tests were showing on big studies of tens of thousands that it was working. Pretty soon, I think they were on the cover of Time magazine. The Financial Times called them the people of the year. And they showed, you know what? You can let immigrants into a company, into a country. They don't necessarily lower the IQ. I thought that was the most wonderful rebuttal to racists around us.
0: It certainly was. Uh, We are talking to um, David Badanis, the author of The Art of Fairness, The Power and Decency in a World Turned Mean. David's the author of many other books, uh, in particular, uh, Electric Universe. It was a prize-winning book, uh, Einstein's Greatest Mistake, uh, a lot of books about tech. And so it wasn't surprising to me, at least, um, that there are a couple of sections on tech in the book. you You compare and contrast, just as you compare and contrast uh, FDR and Goebbels, you compare and contrast two Microsoft leaders, of course, neither of them are FDR or Goebbels. Steve Ballmer um, and Satya Nadella, the current CEO of um, Microsoft. What do Ballmer and Nadella teach us about the art of fairness, David?
1: Uh, Ballmer uh, teaches us that... um, uh, that, just letting all your feelings out, if you, have an, um, if you have an angry personality, is not necessarily effective. Ballmer took over Microsoft in about 2000. If you had uh, invested uh, $100 in Microsoft then, when he left in 2014, he would have shrunk it to about 80 cents, which is pretty impressive for a company that you know had been this enormous monopoly and successful uh, before. He missed the cloud. He missed mobile computing. He missed almost everything. And he didn't just miss these things by chance. He was really thuggishly angry at almost everybody, almost all the time. If you want to be really cruel, you can uh, look on YouTube and type in Balmer Developers, and you see a clip of him running around screaming about developers. I I take your point, David, but aren't we all prisoners
0: of history here? When Balmer came to power in Microsoft, Microsoft had missed the biggest thing of all, which was the internet. And Balmer was angriest, you're right, he was a very angry man but also a very brilliant salesman, but he was angriest of all about Google because Google had won the internet before Microsoft even got started. To get to Nadala, you needed a Balmer. Isn't that always true in history?
1: It's true. Uh, you're right that sometimes tough, uh, angry people uh, have an intermediate position. And also number two is like Balmer, you know, was an assistant to Bill Gates. Um, and often the person who's the loyal assistant Turns out not to be that effective when they get into power. Gordon Brown was, you know, number two to Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of Britain, for many years. And when he finally got power as Prime Minister, he wasn't very good at it. So you're right. Uh, 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 Microsoft was in a difficult position when Ballmer took over, and I gotta say, he did not make the difficult position better. When Nadella took over in 2014, he was even in, in a worse position. The best uh, tech graduates were not, you know, people from Harvard or Caltech or Britain's Imperial College. They didn't want to go up to Redmond, Washington to work with Microsoft. Microsoft was a has-been. Apple was cool. You know, the Google was cool. At, at that time, you know, us. Like, Facebook was cool. Um, Nadella turned that around, and he turned it around not by yelling more and stuff, but by saying, you know what? If people on the outside are doing better than us, why? Why is Apple doing so well? Why is Linux, are these quote-unquote open source, are these free operating systems, why are they doing well? Maybe we can have the modesty to learn from others. Maybe we can have alliances. Maybe we can empower people instead of terrifying people. Turns out if you had invested $100 in uh, Microsoft in 2014, it would have been a good investment. But what is it, $700 or $800 now? Actually, can I ask you, Andrew, a particular question, a vocabulary question I've always wondered about? When Ballmer announced his, uh, that he was going to leave uh, Microsoft in 2013, mm. the stock market went up 7%. Everybody hated his guts. Forbes magazine, that called him the worst CEO of any public company. But yet, because he owned so much stock, he got really rich that day. He got hundreds of millions of dollars. Is there a single word or verb for that effect in Britain, in, in, in English language? You find out, on the day you find out your friends really, really hate you, you get really rich because of it. Is there... What, I don't know what he felt out on a day like that. Yeah, there should be a Yiddish word for that. I'm sure there is. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. to ask my gra-
0: I, I, If my grandmother was around, I would ask her. Unfortunately, she isn't. I, you, you mentioned Apple, um, David. And you also mentioned earlier that your editor was merciless in cutting chapters out. I would have expected a chapter on contrasting Steve Jobs, the ultimate jerk, with uh, with Cook, with Tim Cook who was the number two, who was the kind of uh, the, sorry, the, the Balmer of, um, of, of Apple. Everyone expected him to fail because he's a decent guy and a moral guy. He didn't park in the disabled spot like, um, like Steve Jobs. And yet he's made Apple even more successful than Jobs ever dreamed of. What can we learn from Apple as well? Uh, well, we see,
1: you're right. Oh, and can I also say, <laughs> he would be a really good commissioning editor. It, I can't begin to tell you how much time I spent researching Steve Jobs and interviewing people, and I wrote up this really nice section because you're quite right. Uh, he and Cook—the only reason I chose one of uh, one of the pair was simply uh, for space reasons. I couldn't have two similar—they're not identical stories, but similar stories uh, in, in in the same book, which is uh, which is a shame. But yeah, and again, so Cook. You're right. He's a decent man, and he's had a lot of pain in his life. When he was younger, you know, he's he is who he is. But when he was younger, he had to hide who he was. Nadella's had a lot of pain. He had a child with cerebral palsy, uh, and but and very handicapped. And at first, Nadella freaked. Why has the universe done this? And then he became to kind of accept and understand and sort of like FDR hitting rock bottoms. And well, what maybe I can make something good of this? Maybe I can give my my son a, a as good a life as possible. And maybe I can become more compassionate uh, towards others. For Nadella, it was a bit of a, turning, uh, a turnaround. A uh, cook is similar. I, this is not perfect you know, all these big tech companies that might have issues with privacy and, and other things, but he's a decent guy. I mean, he's a mensch if, if we're using those words. Yeah, um, he's very, working.
0: very different from He's uh, not a thug, Steve he keeps, Jobs, his, he keeps yeah. his work.
1: And you know what it shows? Steve Jobs was extremely effective. The Apple products are famous. They transformed everything. Um, so there's many ways to the top. Zukov, the Russian general, was a murderous killer and a superb general. Montgomery or Patton in in the Western armies were nothing at all like that when it came to being uh, vicious to their own people or to random uh, civilians. But they also were effective in their own way. Who's the contrast to Goebbels?
0: Because Goebbels was a master propagandist. You have a a chapter on the English filmmaker Danny Boyle, uh, who... uh, who made uh, *Train Spotting*, uh, *Slumdog Millionaire*, uh, and Steve Jobs? Um, is there an equivalent? I mean, I, I don't think Danny Boyle is 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 the Joseph Goebbels of uh, of media, but is there an equivalent to a moral character in media who's used propaganda or imagery for the
1: good of mankind? For for the ones who use it for the good, um, well, say so I say Danny Boyle, his opening ceremony, going way back to the 2012 Olympics in London was just the beautiful account of what people pulling together, making a cohesive health service or things like that could really do. It really, it spotlighted the best of Britain. It had, uh, Berners-Lee, they had a Berners-Lee, a the developer of the internet, uh, sorry, of, of hypertext It had JK Rowling. And it had just, had, it had it really all these, all these, it had, uh, Paul McCartney, you know, it really, it really had a lot of good stuff. And it reminded you of, of the best of, uh, of what Britain can do. And he succeeded in making that opening ceremony so successful because he he was trying to keep it a secret, like one of Steve Jobs's product launches. But telling ten thousand volunteers to keep a secret doesn't work. So instead, he listened to somebody else. He listened with put his ego to the side, and he listened to uh, Sepp Co, the famous uh, uh, athlete, who said, "Look, don't call it a secret. Call it a surprise." And so they put a big hashtag, "Save the surprise," and people responded well to that. So those are the sort of techniques that where you can use communication well. Joseph Goebbels, who you were asking about he, uh, he but can used you be, Well, we know Goebbels was bad david uh,
0: can you be a moral propagandist i mean someone had to create the fdr imagery you know a lot more about fdr than i do did Goebbels have his own uh, not Goebbels? did did fdr have his own gobel's uh, in, um, in terms of building this imagery because we all know the stories that you know, FDR, when he was on the radio, he never talked about his disability and he came across in a quite different way. In other words, my question is, even the best people need effective propagandists,
1: don't they? Totally. And um, and it's an also an interesting question, which has been in a number of movies and stuff. What if you have to lie, but for a really good cause? You know, what if there was a, a, a political principle that you think is really important or an ethical action or a way a company can develop in some way? And the only way to get it across is to press some buttons that you think, oh, it's a bit unethical. It's always the problem about means and ends. Uh, there, I actually don't know what the answer is. Um, what well, I who's do. the like... philosopher
0: behind this book, David? Um, recently, we had um, the uh, historian, the English historian Alexander Lee's written a wonderful book about uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. <laughs> Listening to you and the the the, the questions of morality and telling the truth. There's a lot of Machiavelli in your thinking. Did you borrow from Machiavelli or are there other great philosophers who have influenced you over the ages?
1: There were really quite a few. Uh, Machiavelli is definitely in there. I have a little bit of him in the book um, and and quite a bit in in a reading guide at the end, like a a long bit of that. Can I just ask, when you had that fellow on the show, did you guys talk about, because I was always wondering this famous quote, you you can rule by fear, you can rule by love. And Machiavelli said, you know what? If you can only have one rule by fear. Did you, did you guys talk about that? How accurate or not accurate that is? How well it applies?
0: Well, we were talking more, um, that's out of the prints. Uh, I don't think we, 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 we talked about it, but we have talked about those issues. What's your opinion, David?
1: Well, it's funny. It's really tempting to say rule by fear and be tough. And Machiavelli said that, but Machiavelli said that when he was in exile from Florence in a tiny little farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. He had suffered prison and torture and stuff because all his tough guy principles had totally failed. He had totally messed up his life. He
0: was a failed general. And I I think the Alex Lee book is actually really good because it brings out the real human being in Machiavelli and reveals him as a, a very bawdy, all too human character. Well, there's a lot of great stuff in this book, David. Congratulations. The Art of Fairness. The Power of Decency in a World turn Mean. Uh, the right book at the right time by the right author. Uh, David, what else in these strange times as uh, Biden is preparing to invade, uh, uh, not Biden, uh, Putin is preparing to invade Ukraine in early December 2021? What else should people be reading to make sense of the world? Our troubling world. Our
1: world... Uh, Which is turning mean? I would recommend uh, two books. One is a new book uh, by the wonderful uh, Dutch writer and thinker Rutger Bregman, who wrote the book *Humankind*.
0: Yeah, old friend of mine. We need to get Rutger actually on the show to talk about. Well, that would
1: be great. I mean, I'd love to hear him talk with you because his uh, my book's like maybe more historical and psychological. His is really gets into a lot of biology and and other like social science principles, and it's and it's a good read. He he knows what he's doing. The other book I'd recommend is the book of Samuel in the uh, in the Old Testament. It's the story of uh, it's the story of King David and how somebody with the best of intentions gets twisted and fall apart how could that happen and it's written poetically and briefly and it shows the significance of listening to ordinary people and when you go past that when you get caught up in your own nonsense you can get crushed and they're both good reads they
0: are both good reads Bregman and the Bible Uh, The two B's uh, and David Badanis, another B, The Art of Fairness, The Power uh, Power of Decency in a World Turned Mean is another important book. Congratulations, David. Book is just out in the US. Uh, It's already out in the UK. I'd love to have you back on the show to talk more about Machiavelli, morality, uh, FDR and all the other great issues which are perplexing us. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much for watching this Keen on Show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keenon Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows, you might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community And I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.